Continuing our series of interviews with the most recent class of Presidential Rank Award winners, we turn to someone who's been on the show before. Kara Abercrombie is the former acting deputy director of the Defense Security Cooperation Agency. She's now on detail at the National Security Council, and she joins me now, Ms. Abercrombie. Good to have you back. Thanks. Nice to be here. Tell us now what your title is and more important, what you're doing at the National Security Council these days. Sure. Uh, so I am a deputy assistant to the president and coordinator for defense policy and arms control with the National Security Council. I've been on detail there since January of 2021. Uh, and I lead a couple of teams on the defense side of the house. We are looking largely at space policy, nuclear policy, force posture, security cooperation, uh, including with Ukraine over this past year, uh, as well as looking to ultimately close uh, the detention facility at Guantanamo Bay. On the arms control front, we're looking for an extension uh, eventually, hopefully, to the New START Treaty, um, arms control nonproliferation, export controls, and a, and a host of other things. It seems like the pandemic and then what you, you were in the midst of when you started there, and now the Ukraine situation has really scrambled things with all of these weapons flows going to different parts of the world, principally to Ukraine from different parts of the world. And it's not nuclear, but it's still things that would come under arms control. Yeah, no, so certainly we are working across the interagency. We, as you've seen, have sent a tremendous amount of security assistance to Ukraine. And one of the things my team's been working diligently on um, across the interagency is ensuring we have accountability for those systems. And we do have confidence in that. We've worked a lot with countries in the region over the years to ensure arms are uh, not illicitly transferred across borders. We've helped build capacity and more broadly, you know, looking to uphold uh, broader arms control and nonproliferation regimes, which, as you noted, are being tested at the moment. And as we send ever more sophisticated weapons to Ukraine, and now these German tanks, looks like they're going to be headed there. And those are pretty high tech because Germany has a history of making good tanks. Is one of the worries that these things could fall into Russian hands? Because their stuff turns out to be pretty primitive and sort of crappy compared to what the West has. And they could get a hold of some of this stuff and, and get a jump start. With every arms transfer decision that we or our allies make, we, we factor in all of these considerations about the risk of possibly falling into other hands. And we're quite confident, number one, that the Ukrainians are using these to great effect and quite responsibly. Uh, we're not really worried about the risk of transfer at large, but certainly on the battlefield, there is always that that risk. And so we factor that into account before we transfer anything. And just to roll back to history for a moment, when you were with us the last time, a few years ago, you were working on job certification, job training standards for people working for the Defense Security Cooperation Agency at that time. How did that all come out? And what kind of standards or job basic training needs did you come up with? Yeah, I'm really proud of that effort. It was a rather Herculean effort that was mandated by Congress, uh, who noted appropriately that we spend an awful lot of um, U.S. assistance dollars and time on providing our allies and partners with capabilities and training. And they wanted to ensure that the U.S. workforce was properly trained, not only in the laws and regulations that govern all of that, but also in the implications for our relationships with countries abroad. So what we did was was over a two year period, really both develop a certification program uh, to train the more than 15,000 DOD 
uh, civilian and military officials who do that kind of work across the department and around the world. Uh, and we so we created um, a three-tiered training system. We invested heavily in the educational platform. Um, we established the Defense Security Cooperation University. I was the first president of that. Uh, but we went to great pains before the pandemic to make sure we had a very strong learning management system that was capable of delivering web-based virtual learning in addition to in-classroom training, which served us very well in the pandemic. It let us pilot the program virtually in the first year. And I'm very proud to say the program's now been um, officially established into Defense Department policy through an instruction uh, and is well underway to training and certifying um, the, the workforce. We're speaking with Kara Abercrombie. She's a recent presidential rank award winner, now on detail at the National Security Council. So would you say that that work in developing the workforce and the tools to keep developing it would be one of the reasons you feel you got that rank award? Absolutely. That was, as I said, a a rather significant undertaking. And in doing so, I had a, a very strong team at the Defense Security Cooperation Agency. We worked diligently to be smart about setting up something new. There had been actually a RAND study commissioned at the outset when the legislation was passed that estimated more than 250 new positions would need to be created to implement a program of this scale. I am proud to say because we automated a lot of the compliance mechanisms through connecting the learning management system to personnel um, databases, we only needed to hire about two dozen new personnel. So that was, you know, investment up front and thinking smartly about how to run a program um, reaped tremendous dividends. I guess they call that efficiency. Yes. <laughs> well, that's interesting because now that you have participated at the policy level and you're close to the central nerve system of the whole defense and national security apparatus, and yet you've also operated nuts and bolts bureaucratic programs to make sure that the government people are trained, that the systems they use to train are up to date. So you've worked really at the operational level and now at the policy level. What does that make you, do you think? Pretty senior. I mean, you're a member of the senior executive service, but not many people get to work at both those levels, do they? No, I feel very fortunate. You know, it it, it is not um, common for uh, career officials to be detailed uh, to the level that I've been detailed at at the White House. And it it is I pinch myself every day for having the opportunity to serve at the White House. But I think it makes me, you know, a better assistant to the president, to the national security advisor, because I know how when we establish new policy, I know what it takes to actually implement it across the bureaucracy. And I think that helps me connect the, you know, the implementers, if you will, to help them sort of see the vision that we're trying to accomplish through policy and help them navigate a path to making it achievable, but also to set realistic expectations At the White House, we can have bold vision, but we also need to be pragmatic in what it will take to get that accomplished. And day to day, what's your life like? Are you going to an office somewhere? I imagine the National Security Council is somewhere in the vicinity of the White House. That's right. We're in that very large, beautiful, ornate building, uh, the Eisenhower Executive Office building right next door to the West Wing. Uh, My daily commute is walking back and forth across that street multiple times a day um, for meetings and engagements. And we've been in the office since day one, despite the pandemic, just because of the nature of the work. Right. That big old pile that was war, treasury and state, I think, at one time. Yes. The Second Empire building that we all admire so much with the great stairwells. So it's mostly meetings all day? Mostly meetings all day. Yes. (laughs) 
<laughs> wow. And uh, do they do they provide coffee for the meetings or everyone brings their own in the government? Uh, the little secret at the White House is the, the White House supplies us with uh, chocolate and soda. So plenty of caffeine and sugar to go around. All right. So that, well, that makes it bearable. <laughs> so what are your plans? Where do you go from here? Someone that's done what you've done. I am committed to public service. I feel passionately about the importance of having career officials who can provide that institutional continuity across administration. So I'm very proud to serve in the Biden administration, but I'm also very proud to continue serving in the federal government in some capacity when this little tour is over. So you'll go back to regular Title V career person when this one is over? Yes. Okay. And are there things that you can't discuss with the family and so forth? I mean, there must be clearance level discussions at the yes, National Security Council. That is, not dis- that is not dissimilar from a lot of the work I've done at the Defense Department. My husband just knows if, if the phone rings, I, I need to take it. And maybe he'll read about it in the paper tomorrow. <laughs> and maybe not, but he'll never find out about it from you either. That's right. I guess that's the life we chose, as uh, one of the great lawyers said. Kara Abercrombie, is a recent Presidential Rank Award winner. She's now on detail at the National Security Council. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to our podcast version wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field, and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, 
And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have You mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? 
in 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.